this is the Commercial Property Show Australia. Show 34. Let me just go back to the technology for two seconds okay. and give that as well <laughs> if I can. Uh, because, sure, sure. because we're a pretty low-tech industry. When we get some technology, we'll get heavily excited. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and this is really new. It only came in through the COVID period. In the Australian market, there's two options. There's CAS, keyless access system, or no key. And, and they both achieve the same thing. Your phone is the key right from the beginning to the end. How is everyone doing? Thank you so much for joining me on the Commercial Property Show Australia. I'm your host, Andrew Bean. I've got an absolutely killer show for you today. Really excited about this one. And here it is. Hans Pearson from Store Invest and Store Local is my guest today. And he is an expert in the Australian self-storage industry. We really, really get into it. It's a really fun chat. All things storage, and we do start geeking out a little bit. I also make a big announcement for my investment plans in the future. I really hope you enjoy this interview, guys. It was so fun making it, and here it is. Investing in commercial property is a lot like a team sport. You need a lot of good players around you to complete a property transaction. No one can do it alone. If you're like me and want to surround yourself with like-minded people who have similar property goals, people who motivate you and push you to achieve more, then come and join the commercial property community today. You can find our private group on Facebook by searching Commercial Property Show Community or you can click on the link in the show notes. Our expert guests are just waiting to answer your questions in the forum and together we can help each other reach the ultimate goal of financial freedom. My next guest is an experienced lawyer, investment banker, funds manager and founder of Store Invest. It's Hans Pearson. How are you, mate? I'm great, Andrew. How are you going? I'm fantastic, mate. Thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate it. My absolute pleasure. Looking forward to learning and sharing and seeing what we get through. No worries, mate. So for the listeners that don't know who you are, can you just tell them a little bit about yourself? So I'm based in Brisbane on the east coast of Australia. A family guy and a tragic uh, rugby union fanatic. Uh, so that's what I do outside of work and just ticked over a critical uh, halfway age point last year. So people can work that out. But uh, look, I've been in the property industry pretty much my whole life in various roles, as you outlined, with evaluation, legal, and then property investment banking, and then private funds management across Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, all on the east coast of Australia for those offshore. And yeah, that's been my professional background and I've got a deep passion for property investment and the numbers side of it, but probably most passionate, I'd say, about building a business based on culture and, and just giving people an opportunity to be the best that they can be. It's um, been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, I love it, man. It sounds great. So you are the founder and CEO of Store Invest. 
for people that don't know, that's a self-storage company. Why self-storage? Yeah, so self-storage. So I wasn't always in self-storage. I got involved in it um, in about 2006. I, previous to that, was had a diverse property background and a bit of commercial, a bit of industrial and a little bit of residential. But the I had a site that I was able to secure in Melbourne and I didn't actually end up really knowing what to do with it. And my eventual business partner, a great mate of mine, Rob McTaggart, who is still my business partner, said, look, why don't we try self-storage? So we had a go at at some self-storage. We leased it rather than operated it. And I I can fill out the journey to being an owner and an operator now. But initially, the first project was to lease the property. So it was probably really an industrial project, but I I took the time to watch that business, see how it was built and how it operated. And it actually ended up, Andrew, that it was one of those strange lease situations where it actually would have preferred that self-storage company that leased the property fell over because I would love to have inherited the business that was underpinning the lease. And so it was, it was a really nice deal for us. We, we sold that in 2011, made a great return for our investors and for ourselves. And I really then have focused from a property side of things only on self-storage from that point. Just really fundamentally, why do we think it makes sense? Why is it a good sector? There's 10 car parks, two toilets, one and a half staff, two lifts, and 600 tenants in each store. So risk diversification and simplicity of an operating business based on underpinned by high value land to us just makes all sorts of sense. At the time, no one else was doing it. So that's another reason why we thought we should get right into it. And we did. I love the, the one and a half staff. <laughs> and <then I'm> sure. <laughs> uh, so, mate, can you just explain in your words what Store Invest is? Sure. So I'm just going to widen that a fraction. So Store Invest and Store Local, the two arms of our business. Store Invest is really what it is. It's a self-storage investment platform. So we've run a funds management business since 2010, and we have co-invested with high net worth and family office investors since then. All of our capital raising has been word of mouth. We've raised nearly $100 million of equity over that time and circled some of that back through a couple of really successful exits of some stores along the way. But fundamentally, Store Invest is an unlisted self-storage investment platform and it's the largest of its kind in the Australian New Zealand market with nearly 250 mil worth of assets under management. Beautiful. So is the plan to take it public at one point in the future? Oh, look, we don't know. It's it's an interesting point in time in the Australian self-storage market, Australian New Zealand self-storage market. For the US listeners and the UK listeners, uh, particularly US, they will know that self-storage is, is an institutionalised asset class and the listed REITs there have been performing well for a really, really long time. The Australian market has one listed REIT. There is another listed property company that does have self-storage, but there's one pure listed self-storage REIT. And they've gone really well. They listed in 2013, but they're still the only one to this day. We're the fourth largest player in the Australian market. But we're a long way behind the big three. So for us, really, the goal is really specifically to grow our 250 mil of owned assets out to 750 over the next three to five years. And then things such as listing on the public markets become available. But it would only be one of several options that we, we would investigate uh, between now and then. Yeah, fair enough. So when, when you're finding an asset, 
is the operation or is it always the idea to put your store local in there or was that always the case? No, so the journey was interesting that when we we did our first project that I spoke about, sold that, and as I mentioned, it was leased to one of the larger operators, and we really were just just a landlord, had a landlord-tenant relationship that gave us the opportunity to look into and understand the business. When we sold that asset in 2011, we simultaneously acquired another self-storage asset, but it was managed rather than leased. It was managed by a large, the largest and at the time the only third-party manager in the Australian marketplace. Third-party management for those new to the industry effectively is if Andrew owns a property, which is a self-storage property, he can either run that himself under his own brand and call it Andrew's storage, if you like, (laughs) or you could outsource that management and the branding to a third-party manager. So effectively, you can go and sit on the beach for the next 10 years and you can just collect income from that with a, a known brand and operating management system running that store for you and you don't need to worry about it anymore. So our second asset was run by the largest and the only third-party brand and operator in the Australian market at the time. We then bought another asset in 2012, 13, 14, and then we started to grow. It occurred to us that we knew enough about the industry. There was no one else doing third-party management and we had an opportunity, we thought, to invent our own brand and bring those operations in-house. And it was definitely a strategic decision to build our own ecosystem, if you like, and to capture all of the value within the business. And that is the asset value, but then also drive the operating business so that we've got the levers on the performance of the business. So we did that in 2015, and we created in our boardroom here a new brand called Store Local. And we applied store local to our own stores. We recruited a key employee from a large operator, and he was a co-founder of that business, Mark Gregg, who is, a, is an outstanding self-storage operator and leads that business today, the store local business. And so then we, we started to build that out. And Andrew, we then started to manage other people's stores under the store local brand as well as continue to build out our own assets, branded and operated as store local. And today we have 30 stores across the Australian market. We own 20 of those and 10 of those we manage for other owners. And our ambition on that business is to grow that out to 50 to 100 stores. Yeah, beautiful. So I'm guessing that you would have a minimum like size requirement if you were going to take on a store for someone else as a third-party operator. Is that right? Pretty much, yeah. Look, it, it does depend, Andrew. Some Australia, unlike some other global markets, there's a regional aspect to the Australian market, right? There's some small towns and various things where there's actually some really interesting opportunities that we can apply the, the store local brand to or we can acquire in-store invest and then apply the store local brand too. And frankly, we're, we're oftentimes ambivalent to whether we own and up operate or just operate for someone else. So but to try and put a specific answer to your question, look, typically, you know, we'd like to see a store of a minimum of 3,000 plus square metres. In the US market, you might regard that as 30,000 square foot. An ideal size for us where we're really adding a lot of value and we're in a metropolitan location. That's sort of, you know, five to thousand, seven thousand square meters or 50 to 70,000 square foot. Okay. So when you're actually looking for a new asset, 
Are you looking for underperforming assets that you can turn around with the idea to put store local in them as store invest, like when you're looking for assets to purchase? Yeah, look, we deliberately set up, and this is the interesting for, for other people to to think about whether they can they do this themselves. But for us, it was it's been a couple of steps. So get to invest in and understand the sector deeply, establish your own operating platform, and then look for a couple of avenues of growth. One to either keep investing and buying assets or developing assets, or to grow the third party management and continue to grow that way under the store local brand. So if we're buying assets, there's three ways that we look for growth and we pursue these with different focus in different markets, right? So where an existing store is producing income and there's not a lot of value add through expansion or trade up in the early 2000s, early 2010s, there were a number of those stores that were available at pricing that made sense to us. And so we bought some of those. Typically, some larger land holdings. We like things with large land holdings uh, and um, you know, to be land rich over the longer term. But in the current market where capitalisation rates are pretty tight, institutions are looking to pay some pretty strong prices, it's unlikely that we will buy a shiny diamond, if you like, and pay what the institutions are prepared to pay. As I like to say to the guys, they've just got a different calculator to us. It works for them. <laughs> you know, we're not being critical. It's just, yeah, you know, they've just got a different set of maths than, than what we are prepared to adopt. But so the, the sweet spot for us, and we typically buy off market rather than on market, uh, the sweet spot for us is value add assets, we like to, to term, and that could be either to trade up, bringing our operating platform store local in and, and turning some operational performance around. And that's bringing in you know, our, our, our hyper-local marketing focus. It's bringing in our staff training through Store Local Academy. It's bringing our, our Store Local business systems, just the way that we do things in, in a really micro-detailed way. So we can trade up stores uh, in a range of markets, whether they're metropolitan or regional. And you know, there's, there's plenty of opportunity in this market. It's still a disaggregated, in some ways, a cottagey industry across a lot of the stores where you can really turn over some rocks and find some really good opportunities, rough diamonds, if you like, where we can bring in our management systems and, and trade them up, or they're trading along well, and or but they need some physical expansion on some adjoining land. And that is, again, a, a really nice space for self-storage. So if you if you buy, and we've got a couple of assets, uh, quite a number that we own at the moment that we're expanding. We're undertaking nine expansions over the next 12 to 18 months, six of which are, are already approved and ready to go. And that is where you own an existing store, but you can expand onto the adjoining land. And when you do that, you're adding a lot net lettable area, but you're not adding any staff and you're really not adding a lot of operating expenditures. So in a strong operating market like now, it's so important to be able to deliver to meet the prevailing demand and we can do that by expanding onto land that you already own. It's a really profitable enterprise. So we love those sort of projects. And then the third avenue of acquisition growth is greenfield development. So just buying vacant land, typically with a development approval. So we'll usually be subject to development approval and then delivering a brand new build. And typically they would be in a metropolitan location and they could be between two and four stories in size. We have one under, under construction right now, actually, at Hendra in the Brisbane, at the gateway to the Brisbane airport. 
really exciting project. It's got direct access on and off uh, a major arterial road, which links the airport and the city. And it'll be over four levels. We have some co-working space in there, Andrew, because we're seeing a lot of demand from e-commerce, business users, trade users. So we can offer co-working space and some training rooms for on-the-road sales teams. And we're using the Noki system, the Bluetooth technology that's come through the industry. And to us, that's a bit of a game changer, actually, because people can book in, access through the gate, and then go to their actual individual door. No keys, no locks, and just use their phone, which means that if you're an e-commerce user, you can send your FedEx or your logistics provider a one-time only access code, and they can deliver the goods to your unit. 24-7 in a very secure environment. So look, yeah, Greenfield is a really nice play. The yield on cost, return on cost at maturity is around 8 to 9% versus a cap rate of sort of 5 to 5.5%. And that's a wonderful arbitrage, uh, which we've got a heavy focus on the next three to five years. Now, you mentioned uh, the no key system. I haven't announced this on the podcast yet, but I have been doing a god-awful amount of research on self-storage industry. Right. And... I am planning on purchasing my first facility this year. So when you said no key, I'm going to start geeking out now because that's exactly the things that I want to be able to implement into the facilities that I'm going to be purchasing. So for the listeners, no key system is basically your phone becomes the key and you can actually purchase it online. You can do everything from your phone. You don't need any kind of lock on the actual storage unit or on the gate. So you basically just, you could use your phone. It's like a fob kind of thing. And you get into this facility, you book the facility, you get into the gate, you find your unit, you use your phone to open the roller door and then Bob's your uncle, that's it. So mate, what about investors? You said you, you've been using high net worth investors to purchase these facilities and possibly to the development as well. Can regular people invest with you guys? Yeah, sure. Let me just go back to the technology for two seconds and keep keep (laughs) that as well if I can. Uh, Because because we're a pretty low-tech industry. When we get some technology, we'll get heavily excited. Uh, And and this is really new. It only came in through the COVID period. Uh, There is is an alternative to Nokia, and and we opened the first of its kind uh, in Australia. Uh, It's the CAS or Keyless Access System. Should give them a shout out too because they're they're good guys and they've got a good system. So in the Australian market, there's two options: there's CAS Keyless Access System or No Key, and, and they both achieve the same thing exactly as you described. Basically, your your phone is the key right from the beginning to the end. But look, uh, investors, yeah, look, we have a wholesale funds management license, which in Australia means that you effectively need to be a in double inverted commas sophisticated investor to yep. to invest with us. And we think that's good, comfortable with that. We don't really want investors relying on us for the milk and the bread, if you like. But look, we are, we're currently doing a capital raise, uh, actually, and, and we're spending the next three to six months doing significant capital raise for the next phase of growth in our business. We'll source that from a range of high net worth and family offices that we know and that we are talking to right now, but also some more substantial institutions who we know and we are talking to right now, who we know are really keen to get into this sector, but finding it difficult to find a way to get in because there's so few platforms of scale uh, in, a, in a sector that frankly has such a diverse series of income streams that is a perfect match for 
life insurance companies and uh, and superannuation pension funds. So the investors that you do have, what kind of returns, like percentage-wise, do they receive? Yeah, look, so the, the sort of return profile, two ways we look at that. One is what's their return on cash, their cash on cash return cash on year cash, by year, yep. so their, their income. And that ranges anywhere from sort of 5 to 9%, depending on a couple of things, the location of the asset. We're going to pay a softer capitalisation rate for a regional asset than what we might pay for something in the middle of metropolitan Sydney, for example. So it's going to be a different you know, return should match the risk. So there's going to be a range of returns, but it's also depending, given that self-storage is an operational asset, if we're undertaking a value add via management upscaling or if we're doing a physical expansion, then those cash on cash returns will be at the lower end. But once we finish that expansion or we bring our management expertise in, those, those returns will grow substantially. So that's a, probably a fair range of cash on cash returns. But then the total return, which is the income provided plus the capital growth, what we call the, the IRR or the internal rate of return, over a five to seven year period, the internal rate of return should be around that sort of 12 to 15%. But for greenfield type projects or projects in some regional locations, we should be that 15 to 20% IRR. And we've delivered well over 25% returns to our investors. That's 25% per annum compounding on the assets that we have exited. And with the um, the development in Hendra, what is your expected fill-up time for that, for that asset to stabilise? Yeah, great question. So we're delivering about 5,500 square metres or 55,000 square feet in that project over four levels. We expect that that will fill up from the completion of construction within three years. And we actually think we might be surprised on the upside there, but we've allowed a softer trade up. But if I took a midpoint between our, our feasibility and where we think it'll land, it's around three years to reach maturity. And I'd say I would define maturity as around 85%. Yep. And then it will grow from there up to sort of 90, 92%. But that maturity at 85 is a nice point to reach. Then at that point, Andrew, we're using the dual levers of rental rate growth and occupancy growth, and we just drive those to grow the overall income. And what percentage of supply on the market is that facility going to represent? Oh, look, it's it's an undersupplied side of, of inner north side Brisbane, I must say. So it's difficult to say the demand that we're going to meet, the demand that we expect and the, and the demand we, we're going to meet is from a range of users. So if I can just unpack that a little bit, if you don't mind. There's two aspects to that project. There's the four-level standalone self-storage, but in a separate building on the same parcel of land, we have a row of 11 what we call man caves or work stores, which are sort of nine metres high and range between 65 and 125 square metres in size. And we'll strata sell some of those as strata freehold and we'll retain some for lease. So the demand that we'll meet there is from e-commerce, trade and business users, and also some lifestyle users, I should add, with hobby vehicles and, and various lifestyle uh, things that they want to store. It's a prime location at the intersection of a couple of highways, so really neat location for boats, caravans and, and various lifestyle operators and also some logistics, smaller logistics users. In the self-storage component, we'll have a fairly high business user element, which is why we have a fairly expansive, so 100 square metres of co-working space. 
with training rooms. And then the balance of the space will be sort of will be our traditional personal users, which are residential people that might be relocating, renovating, downsizing, etc. So if I was to try and put a, a percentage on that, I'd like to think that the Hendra store on completion and then up to maturity might have sort of 30 to 40 percent business users and sort of 20 percent lifestyle and then the balance residential. So it's a really unique sort of product. And and I guess that's sort of that's why it's hard for me to describe in generic terms what that demand is that we're looking to fill. It's a changing dynamic. Yeah, fair enough. So Does that make when sense? you're, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, totally. It's it kind of like a mixed use development um, almost. Yeah. Um, yeah so when you're doing a feasibility for a development project, do you do the feasibility study in house or do you have a third party do that for you? Yeah, no, sure. We've got a good team in-house who do all the feasibility work here. It's a series of models that we've built over, up over quite some time. One of our team has migrated here from North America, so has some really good experience in the uh, in the North America, the US and the Canadian markets in self-storage. So we've been able to pick up some of the learnings from that market, which has been wonderful. But yeah, we have our own in-house team. The process that we go through is we actually ring all of the stores in the trade area. We build out a really detailed list of the pricing for each unit size in that trade area. We undertake those calls over a couple of times so that we can just check what the trends of demand might be. And we build that out. That helps us design the unit mix that we want to deliver in there. We then have our own proprietary analytics system called Store Local Analytics. And that blends publicly available demographic data from the census. It then also overlays that on geospatial mapping. But the third answer, which is, which is really unique is, you know, we have thousands of customers across Australia. So we draw on that demographic knowledge and how our stores are performing in a range of different demographics to try and inform our forecast of how a particular store might perform within a particular demographic. So by applying store local analytics across it, that then helps with some more data to fine-tune that selection process. We then yeah, build out the feasibilities. We have an in-house development management team. We're right across and have a lot of experience in, in actually building greenfield projects and, and self-storage expansions as well. We, uh, we have a small team of builders that we work with, allow contingency obviously above that particularly in the current market where some of the raw materials in construction are starting to go up pretty substantially. And then, yeah, we have a formal property investment process uh, that gets signed off by a property investment committee and, and then the asset is, is underwritten and off we go. It's really interesting, you know, the way you described your calling the other, you know, storage facility because that's exactly what I'm doing right now. I'm just doing some secret shopping, I like to call it. I do exactly the same thing where I'm, I'm mapping out every single size unit to the price, figuring out if they're full, how full they are, to basically just understand demand. Is is there demand and is there low supply? Because demand is the main thing, isn't it? Look, it is, Andrew, and, and it's great when you make those calls and I make them myself. It's the other thing that it tells you now, now that we have our own operating business and have, as, as I said, for, for six years, what it also tells us is what the staff are like at those competing stores. Yeah. If we don't get a return call or the website either doesn't exist or it's just really poor, or if we do get a hold of the staff at the store and they're not very customer focused or they are very customer focused, that can teach us a lot. And uh, we either might have some pretty sleepy competitors, which is good, or we might have some really strong competitors, which is still okay if we think that the latent demand 
that needs to be met is uh, is still a, a pretty compelling opportunity. And and again, being a nationwide operator, we think we can mix it with the competition in the local market. But yeah, look, it's it's great that you're doing that. There's no shortcutting. Just picking up the phone, doing the work, going and visiting some of the other stores, walking around, seeing how they're maintained, and just exactly what that offer's like. Because ultimately, it's all about customer experience, and you want a customer to move to your store. People probably only store three or four times in their life, so they're going to make a decision rarely in their life to store. So you need to be able to meet that customer experience and have a good location and a good offer that wins the day. And I think that the opportunity in self-storage is it's still extremely fragmented, meaning that the institutions aren't already all over it. You know, it's still, I think last time I checked, it was roughly about 60% mum and dad operators, especially in second, third and fourth tier markets. And those are the type of facilities that I'm targeting. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've called a, a facility and they just don't want to take my name on the wait list. They just don't care. Like they're like, oh, I'll just call back. I've, you know, I'm never going to have anything. So don't worry about it. So that's a great like an opportunity for me. If, if they're never going to call you back or they don't want to put you on the wait list because they're never going to have anything available, then that could be a, a surefire sign that that's a good facility. Yeah, look, I, I think that's a really interesting observation, Andrew. It's also a sign of the times, right? So COVID has been wonderful for self-storage and we've had a, had a really great 16 to 18 months, uh, Great, and, but it's not just us. The sector has gone very well in Australia and, and globally and thanks to our customers and it's, it's great that we've all been able to be there for customers who clearly have needed us for a range of reasons. So when you're calling some of these stores, they're probably completely full and overflowing and I know in quite a number of our stores, we have wait lists and that's not always the way as we remind our in-store managers don't get complacent it's not always the way so they're probably genuinely just overflowing and just thinking yeah how good is it that will change at some point markets are cyclical so i think just the work you're doing understanding your markets and patiently going through that i think the phone calls that you make when the markets aren't quite so strong might teach you even more and if you are finding that there's a lot of competitors in a trade area that are completely full, that's fine. But just look at the overall depth of that market. It might be a regional location, mm-hmm. which is being driven by a macroeconomic influence like a mining boom or a, you know, a lot of people are moving coastal changes at the moment in the middle of COVID. Is that sustainable? How deep is the population? How many jobs are there that are going to sustain that demand? And just be careful in those smaller locations the risk of oversupply in what is, you know, without relying too much on the current trends, which would tell you that there's just basically limitless demand, which there won't be over the longer term. Yeah, definitely. I definitely agree with that. And that's the biggest risk about risk about self-storage is that it can be quite easily oversupplied, overbuilt. Yeah, let me just talk to that if I may. It's, it's interesting. We have a bit of a different view on that. Look, if you want to build an older style self-storage facility, sure, knock yourself out. You can do that in industrial locations, but it's getting increasingly difficult to access prime high-profile sites, which is very much a key focus for us in our site selection, partly for the reason that if we can put significant signage on a high-profile location, it means that we don't have to pay Google AdWords, an escalating price for, for all of our marketing, we can actually invest in significant signage and that's a one-off investment that we only have to replace every 20 years or so. So it's great for our marketing expenditure. 
but also that the modern so if you've got a high profile high value land that's an expensive project right then if you're going to make the use of that land you're going to do a modern multi-level facility typically that requires a significant amount of capital so the mum and dad or the smaller investors are unlikely to be able to do that that part of the market has really segregated out from that traditional sort of investor institutional investors however and investors such as ourselves can undertake those developments but one might assume that we're probably fairly prudent in doing that given the expenditure that's required not to say that anyone will be perfect and i'm sure there will be some oversupply but in the australian market at least there is just fundamentally such still a lack of awareness of the self-storage product. Our view, at least, and we're not alone, is that the overall sector has got a significant amount of growth ahead of it, and that will be somewhat of a cushion to oversupply, as in the short term will be escalating construction costs. So, look, yeah, I think as a headline, is there a risk of oversupply? There can be, but we haven't seen any as yet. And we don't anticipate, given the overall growth of the sector, that oversupply is going to be a really major issue in most markets. See, what I would I would counter that with was yeah. you're an extremely good operator. I'm not worried about you oversupplying a market because you do a lot of due diligence and you understand what you're doing. Because if you oversupply the market and you go into that market, we're all going to lose. It's the amateur or developer that is building a facility that has no intention of ever running it. They haven't done their any kind of research into supply and demand, what kind of unit mix you want or rates or anything like that. And they're purely just developing it to sell off. Those are the type of people that I'm kind of a little bit wary of. I mean, when you're picking a site, what I look for as well is the current zoning. Do I have what Warren Buffett calls a moat around my investment? Does the current zoning allow for more storage? to be developed there. And if I can get a radius around the current site, that the zoning at the current time, I know zonings can be changed, but the zoning at the current time doesn't allow that to happen, then that's a big plus for me. Would you agree with that statement? I think that's a a really neat way to look at it. And I I like the way you're thinking about it for sure, Andrew, that, that there's a lot of merit in that. I guess the further counter I would have is look, we have a lot of developers that look at the sector, no doubt. And the last two years, Maybe this is somewhat of a uniquely Australian issue. And again, I caution the the US listeners to your podcast that the self-storage is just not as ubiquitous here as it is in the US. So it's still an emerging uh, customer product, if you like. So we've had had developers starting to look at self-storage as an alternative to retail, given that retail is going through a fundamental change and various other sorts of uses, residential or what have you. But when they look into it, developers are, inherently traders right they like to use maximum leverage get a pre-commitment and flick the site on typically that's great that model works and when they sort of dig in and they say well hang on so there's no lease i actually have an operator i have to operate it myself and it's going to take me 12 months to build and then three years to get to maturity so my development profits three to four to five years away so yeah they say, well that's just not how i operate so a lot of developers move on at that point those that stick around, then the bank funding is a natural moat. Again, the banks mm. in Australia are loath to fund unexperienced operators on greenfield development in self-storage. So there's another protector there. There, where there is a potential risk of oversupply, though, to your point, is the conversion of some industrial properties. So we, we do yep. have a, a lot of people looking at inner industrial 
where quite a number of people have bought industrial at pretty tight cap rates. They're looking for a way to sort of maximise the value in all or part of that building and are looking at self-storage conversion. Now, we've done a few of those and they work really, really well. You're effectively putting a second level through an existing industrial building and you're getting double the rent. So it's great. But you would need to make sure you're on in the right location. You've done the demand study that you've spoken about and I've spoken about. But yeah, is there a, a likelihood of some oversupply? I think we could expect in some segments or some locations, we could get some oversupply through industrial conversion over the next sort of two to four years. So I'd tread carefully there. Yeah, definitely. So with population, what is your minimum requirement? We are a little ambivalent to whether we're in metropolitan locations or regional locations. We will go regional. We have a number of regional stores. And thank goodness that we have over the last 18 months through COVID in Australia, the regional locations have really hardly been affected at all by the pandemic. And a lot of people have relocated semi-permanently or permanently to regional areas from metropolitan locations to the beachside communities on the West Coast and on the East Coast. So we've got stores that are 99% full in regional locations in right up the Queensland border and also in WA. Uh, so that's been great. But that's an unusual driver. So let's not assume that, that that's the norm. Uh, but it is important to have diversification. So we'll look in regional locations where there might be, but that, that would need to be a regional hub, a business hub. We might look for a university or a hospital. So it's fundamental infrastructure that we think clearly underpins further government investment and a jobs driver for that local regional economy. And then in metropolitan locations, clearly capital cities in Australia are are a great focus for us. I look around Sydney and it's just for an investor like me, who's who's very, very small time at the moment, you know, there's just no opportunity in first tier markets. I I wouldn't even bother even looking at any, any more first tier markets. I'm only looking second, third and even fourth tier markets. And I'm also looking at, at populations of just over 20,000 if the demand is there with extremely low supply. And then there's also a large increasing volume of jobs in that area. Yeah, I agree with your thesis. That makes all sorts of sense. And yeah, definitely those, the, the institutions and the listed players are very focused on those first tier metropolitan markets. Absolutely. So as you say, you're either priced out through price point or maybe the returns that you're after, Andrew, as a private investor, are better going to be different to what they're after, being a listed player. And neither of those are wrong. They're just, as I said it before, they're a different calculator, and that's okay. We're accessing those tier one markets, and we're doing that through collective investment. So the likes of yourselves can access self-storage through a group such as ours in those tier one markets. But if you want to do it on your own, which is great, then, yeah, I, I think looking in those smaller regional markets where there are some good underlying employment drivers, good infrastructure investment. Absolutely. I think there's plenty of opportunities. And then, mate, you might have a look at automating as best you can. Yep. Obviously, I'd love for you to have a look at store local to look at some of the stores that you might be doing. But automation or an operating platform that you can apply across it are ways for you to have, yeah, to really drive some, I think you'd be really pleased with the returns that you might get out of that. Yeah. I mean, well, as you know, the, the best thing about self-storage is that it's it's not really a real estate asset. It's a business. And so if you're able to increase the income in the business, guess what? Your value of your asset goes up. I mean, that's, where, that's where the real upside is, operating it yourself to a point where you can automate it, where you might be 
off-site. I mean, some of the facilities that I'm looking at, they can't sustain a manager on-site because the income's too low. So automation makes that site sustainable. And you know, I might not be using no key. I might just be using keypad entry and then be able to potentially have the customer buy on the website. But still, I mean, I'm looking at sites everywhere in Australia. I'm not worried about any kind of geographical location. So I have to be somewhat off-site until I can build up a team of managers to be able to look after these facilities for me. I think it's a great strategy and uh, and I wish you well. I look forward to talking with you more about it. It's it really, it, yeah, it, it makes sense. Look, it's it, to us, it's a really neat combination of an operating business model, which compared to others is is simple. Look, it has a lot of nuances, and like anything, it's never as simple as it seems. But it's a it's a simplistic operating business underpinned by high value real estate. We think that's a really good space to be in, and coming into potentially an inflationary environment over the foreseeable future. That's even better. So we're not stuck with long-term leases, but we mm. actually can drive rental growth and capture that inflation opportunity at the front door every single day of the week. And let me just unpack that for the, the listeners. Hans is talking about increasing the rents month to month, potentially, or any kind of period of time, because in self-storage, they're month to month rents. And the actual inflation is the, the best friend of a self-storage owner. And it's actually called dynamic pricing. And I'm, I'm guessing that you have that implemented into all of your businesses, right, Hans? Absolutely, yeah. No, thanks for explaining that in more detail. It's Yeah, so look, in, in a standard store where we might have 600 customers, let's say we're operating at 90% occupancy, we could have 30 or 40 customers in and 30, 40 customers out. And holding our occupancy, that's great because when those 30 or 40 customers come in, there's 30 or 40 opportunities for us in that one month to grow the rent. So we can take the rent up and then for the incumbent customers who are staying there, and we have an average customer stay across our portfolio of nearly 500 days. So while people are with us, we can grow the rents as often as we think is reasonable. We don't try and set world records with that all the time because we don't want customers to feel bad about that, but we can certainly push our rental increases through on a six monthly basis. And in a really high growth environment, we can do it more aggressively than that. So yeah, look, dynamic pricing, we look at, we do sister shops within our markets every single day. Our in-store teams ring competitors and competitors ring us. We know that. We have technology which which scrapes uh, market intel off the web. And then we have different prices for different units and we just track occupancy right down to each and every single unit in each and every single store. And we work out where we have an opportunity to, to drive those prices. And that a large component of that is is automated. And then we delegate that down to the in-store team at the, the store managers who know their local customers, know their local markets, and we empower them to make that final pricing decision, which they do really well. So with the average days that you're being rented, 500, that's pretty good. I'm pretty impressed by that. Yeah, it's uh, look, it's it's really good. So, and this is what institutions are coming to understand that traditionally in Australia, they've well passed this concept in in the US and the UK. But traditionally in Australia, they've been worried about the fact that there's not these long-term leases in place. Well, we've always had the thesis, Rob and I and the team, that that's actually a great thing because we have such a diversity of income. We've got yeah. you know, 600 tenants per store. You're never going to have a day where everyone moves out on the same day. So you're never going to go from a, a long-term industrial lease or you know, to your tenant moving out 
and you're going from full to empty and then you're competing with it, with everyone else for a tenant. That's just not going to happen. So we think it's great. And then customers stay. Any We've had customers stay sort of 10 or 15 years in, in some of the stores that we've bought. We haven't owned it for that whole period of time. And let me just sort of share with customers a couple of experiences. We have a couple of artists in residence where at a couple of the stores, they turn up each day, lift up the unit, do their painting. At the end of the day, they close the unit and head off. And on the weekend, they sell some of their art. And that's really nice. Uh, we have a clock collector in one of our Melbourne stores and all the clocks in his unit go off at three o'clock every day, Andrew. It makes a hell of a noise. <laughs> uh, we have a piano player who comes down to one of the stores and plays the piano on quite a regular basis. So all sorts of crazy stuff goes on. And as I said, we have customers that have been with us for over a decade. But then we have the, the high churn. So someone might be moving house, moving interstate, moving intrastate. Then they're going to be with us for a month to three months. So that gives us good churn as well. Mate, I actually, um, I put a, an offer on a facility yesterday when I was <laughs> speaking to the agent about it. And right. he said to me, yeah, mate, there's actually a tenant that actually lives there in a unit. And I said, <laughs> I said, you're kidding, are you? He lives in a unit. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's been there for like 15 years. When I sold it to the last people, I just told him to stay because he picks up stuff around the yard and he's really, really good for, you know, keeping security. I'm like, mate, I'm pretty sure that's not legal. You know, the insurance isn't going to, if he dies on site and then that yeah. place all burns down, you're not getting insured for that. Like, you know, have you ever, have you ever seen any horror stories like that? Oh yeah. Uh, all sorts of things go on. <laughs> Look, you know, I'd be doing something about that. I agree with you. Yeah, you, you don't want that liability. Unfortunately for your resident there, he's probably done a great job over the years, but there's some liability there that you probably don't want to take on. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah, we have found people staying there in those situations. You know, they're not often not there by choice and we, we try and make sure that, you know, they're rehoused in a, in a sympathetic way. And but look, self-storage is there for people that are in a real dire need. So, you know, it's, and I mean this, it's not just all finances and economics. You know, we're deeply passionate about self-storage in this business and really deeply passionate about our local communities. And, we, and all self-storage providers provide a really important service to their local communities. And we can't lose sight of that. So there are times where people aren't able to meet the rent and we work with them or they turn up on our doorstep through various circumstances where they really need us to solve something for them. So we solve it. So, yeah, there's some funny stories. There's some sad stories. Uh, it's a really dynamic place. We have bands that practice in, in the self-storage, which is pretty cool. Our teams are really, really part of the local community, which, which is great. Yeah, awesome. So how many staff do you have across every site? Yeah, so we sort of average about one and a half. And then we run some, and listeners might appreciate to learn this, we run some satellite stores. So where you're in a regional location, this would be good for you, Andrew, to contemplate as well. You, you might have two or three stores in a regional location, regional location, so you know, 20 to 100,000 or 20 to 50,000 population. You can either have no office or, or, or one office and then run two or three stores off that one office. So we might have one to one and a half staff running three or four stores. And we've got a couple of examples of that. So it's really efficient. And so we've got 30 staff in store across nearly 30 stores, actually just under 30 staff. Our head office, though, has got 16 people in head office. So that's where it runs our whole finance, our marketing, our revenue management, our development delivery, our, our financial feasibility, and our admin side of the business. So, yeah, so the, the head office is a big component of the business. A number of the stores are pretty store staff light. And some of the larger metropolitan stores, we have two full-timers. And with the new development, even with the no-key system, you're probably going to have staff on site as well, aren't you? 
we will do that, I would say, Andrew, unless I'm missing something. But really, when you're running a business that's got one to one and a half staff, to try and remove that down to half a staff and risk customer experience is probably not wise as far as we're concerned. Let's see how the technology rolls out. You know, I might be saying the opposite in 10 years' time and customers might actually be really happy not having staff there. But it is different to a car park, let's say, which are fully automated these days mm. because car park, you're typically in, you're out. Self-storage, your belongings are there or your business is run from there or your collectible vehicles there. So it's actually quite a personal transaction. So for us, we'd rather focus on the customer experience and make sure they spread the word. Nearly 25 to 30% of our customers are referral customers or return customers. That's awesome marketing. That's cheap marketing. So I think we just need to be careful as an industry on not minimising the staff too much. And we've got a role to play to, to, to grow the local community and employ people in those local communities. And self-storage, in essence, is somewhat of a retail business as well to be able to sell ancillary products. And the self-storage unit in itself is a product. Different sizes sure. are all different products. So it is, acts more like a retail business that you need to have staff there to be able to have that customer relationship. Absolutely. You can't walk away from that, right? And with the modern, high-quality product that we're delivering, you need to have well-presented staff, really good systems, nice music, nice lighting. It needs to be a great experience. Uh, and then people will use it, they'll stay, and, and they'll refer. And that's great. So how do you feel about uh, climate control, wine storage, and then also is it a concierge service where you have a pallet turn up and your guy gets on the forklift and unloads it as well? Do you guys implement those things? Look, to a limited degree, and there's others in the Australian market who do the wine storage better than us, no doubt. We've tried it in a couple of locations. We haven't cracked it. We haven't got it right. So I don't really know the answer to that. I think it's really uh, different markets. That's a good feature in others. It's it's a nice to have. Yeah, we're not best in class in, in the wine storage. The wine storage industry, we find the competitors for that are actually got a far better product where there's a whole sort of online ordering and cataloging and sort of service that so if you're if you're having people over for dinner and you and you want to get some nice wine delivered you can actually go on your app bang and then it gets delivered from your wow. collection which is not too far away so i think until we really make an investment in that sort of technology we're going to be a secondary product in wine storage and so it hasn't really been a focus for us today pallet forklift Look, in Australia, there's some regulatory issues around that which concern us. We do less of that today, to be honest. And the demand, it depends on the store. Some stores, there's reasonable demand. Others, there's not. So, it's again, it's not a major focus of our business. Fair enough. And do you implement climate control? Like, And that is different to wine storage. Climate control is just you're keeping a constant yeah, uh, yeah, temperature yeah. throughout the actual facility. More for, obviously, indoor facilities, big facilities. Yeah, that's right. So climate control, look, we have we have climate uh, treatment in our newer stores where, yeah, dehumidifying and the likes, definitely. Again, for the offshore listeners, in a lot of Australia, we don't have the extremes of temperature. Uh, mm. So air-conditioned facilities or fully heated facilities really aren't terribly prevalent in the Australian market. But cooling might be, I guess, for... Uh... Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, in the top end of Australia, yeah, absolutely. Humidity and treatment of air up there is is definitely an issue. But yeah, it's it's more dealing with humidity and keeping a fresh uh, flow of air coming through the property is more important in the Australian market, whereas definitely in the US and other markets, it's uh, yeah, heating and cooling is a big feature, and 
and probably a really key selling point or almost essential. Yeah. So, mate, what about disruptors of the space, like new technologies coming in, people like Uber just totally changing how self-storage is used? Do you fear that? Are you worried about it? We think about it and we certainly keep an eye out for it. We struggle to think where it might come from. I think a really exciting advent in self-storage I alluded to a little earlier with the Bluetooth access, et cetera, is this last inch logistics where self-storage actually becomes part of the overall global logistics framework. So you have last mile logistics, which is well known, which is inner city warehouses. Last inch logistics is getting the logistics via self-storage spaces right in the middle of the rooftops. There's a couple of groups in North America who have made a move in this regard and and I think the the awareness of self-storage as part of that logistics framework uh, will grow demand, it will influence built form, and, I, and I've illustrated that with our Hendra project that we're doing at the moment with the, the sort of business ancillary services such as co-working and training spaces, locations on good logistics arterial roads, but then right in the middle of the rooftops to be able to have 24-7 Bluetooth access could be a bit of a game changer and, and re-rate the sector again and i know that institutions are on to that they're definitely onto that already what about likes of like your mobile storage where they bring a, a box to you you fill it up and they take it back got a good mate who runs the largest one of those in australia and they got a nice business i think it should have a component of the business we embrace them as part of the industry association part of the industry i think they're a really legitimate part of the industry I sometimes tell him, geez, can you back off? Some of my mates have been using the product. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, look, it makes sense. I guess for us personally, the challenge of that business, we're attracted to the simplicity of self-storage. That's got too many moving parts for us with trucks and those sorts of things. But look, they've built a nice business and it's really good to see them do well. So it's got a component, there's no doubt, and I think it'll be a sustainable component of the industry. So one of the things that I really like about uh, the self-storage industry is the self-storage association. You don't find that across every single type of asset class in commercial property. You're on the board for the self-storage association. Can you just explain what it is? Yeah, sure. So I'm I'm the large operators rep and the association represents the members, right? As simplistically as that. And look, self-storage is a really nice industry. The people in self-storage are typically really good people. They're collegiate, Uh, they, they, they share information, largely a family-owned sort of industry and and as you've indicated that's consolidating and changing over time but i hope it doesn't lose that character so and the industry in australia certainly exhibits those characteristics so yeah it's it's good they represent the the members in terms of any legal issues the industry is unregulated so the industry provides a standard license agreement which people can use and gives customers some comfort that it's got the self-storage Association of, of Australasia stamp on it. They host events, so learning events, starting to do a bit more advocacy on behalf of the industry. But the role of the association is pretty topical. It's going to change and and that is in line with the change of the industry. So the industry becoming institutionalised, having pretty sophisticated investors, uh, a, a more expensive and, and more innovative and sophisticated built form means that the association is going to have some different challenges in terms of being an advocate and growing the awareness of the sector. And probably one of the great things that the Association Australasia did uh, late late in 2020 was not just be there for members who were struggling through the COVID pandemic, but completed a two-year research piece, which is before I joined the board, on 
a really deep dive statistically on where the industry is at. And they're going to produce that. We're going to produce that biannually now. So great research piece, which is good for investors to understand what's going in the industry. And certainly we think as a business, and the, I know the industry is of this view, that more transparent we are with information, that's just better for the industry. You can't hide data anymore. You've got to have your data and you've got to get it out there. So the association is really good. I have read that report front to back and it was very, very interesting. You liked it? Great. I did like it. I did like it. I'm a little bit geeky like that and I liked all those stats and everything, you know, learning about it. So it's very good. And I've got one more geek question. What software do you run? We run SiteLink. SiteLink. Okay, excellent. And uh, that obviously is one of the front runners in the self-storage software space, isn't it? It is. It's a, it's a global system and yeah, we enjoy it. We have a few add-ons to it and yeah, great system. We use it for a lot of years. Perfect, mate. So where do you see Store Invest and Store Local in 10 years? Oh, I don't know. Uh, 10 years is a long time. Uh, uh, let's bring it into to three years. Uh, we've got some okay. really, spe- really specific size goals in the next three years. We've got some really specific size goals in the next five years. And we think in that five-year period, the industry is going to institutionalize at quite some pace. Uh, we think the built form is going to continue to evolve. We're really excited about those things. Technology is going to play a bigger role. So for us, it's a scale game. We've spent 10 years investing heavily in our platform, both our investment platform and our management platform. We're really proud of those businesses. We're in a really nice position to pivot to the next level of scale. So for us, every time we're at a store that we own or we manage, it's accretive to our business and for our investors. So yeah, it's a scale game for us. If we get to that 750 mil of assets plus the stores that we manage, all of the various recapitalization options are available to us that you mentioned earlier. And so we just want to grow our nationwide footprint pretty aggressively. We're really positive about the growth profile for the sector over the next three to five years. Yeah, we'll be bigger. We'll be bigger and improving all the time. No doubt, mate, no doubt. So I definitely agree with you. From my research, mate, and that's nowhere near the research that you've put into it, I can see that there's a window of opportunity for self-storage right now of about five to 10 years right now, because I think in 10 years, the institutions are going to be just all over this and we're not going to be able to get a good look in. The cap rates are going to consolidate because more people are going to be interested in this type of asset. Basically, what's going on with industrial right now is the cap rates are consolidating because everyone wants to be in that asset. And I think self-storage is next. Uh, How do you feel about that, mate? I think you've read it exactly right, Um, spot on. The Australian New Zealand market is in for a really strong five to 10 years. The main investment themes that we see are it's a strong inflation hedge, as I mentioned, with the ability to grow rent day to day and to capture that any inflation that will come through in the the macro environment. The supply constraints that, that we see at least, the larger built form will be a natural hedge to oversupply in most markets. Demographic tailwinds are really strong. You know, downsizing is, you know, it's a global driver. Interstate migration in Australia, people are moving everywhere. Work from home, work from anywhere is here to stay. E-commerce, lifestyle activities, that all drives self-storage demand. The last inch mile logistics and then the sector re-rating as it becomes institutionalised just through greater local investor awareness of the sector and the durability of the income streams, we think will significantly re-rate the sector. So, look, I think you're bang on. The institutions are coming into the space. They're already here and they're coming at some speed. 
And I think the the line you've drawn there to industrial logistics is, is exactly right. And the early movers in that got set about five years ago, and they're starting to move into self-storage amongst other alternative real estate classes, but they're keen on operating businesses in the real estate space, and, and self-storage is definitely one of those, and and has proven itself in COVID again to be a really good counter-cyclical um, and resilient play. So, no. Uh, bang on and yeah we're looking forward to playing our role in it it's a great sector good people and yeah we we the saying we have um in our business is uh, is i love storage it's all on our cups it's on our shirts and uh, and we do mate we're really passionate about it uh, it's great to hear you're getting into it as well and getting passionate about self-storage it, it doesn't surprise me that's awesome mate so where can the listeners go to find out more about you and your business yeah great thanks for that uh look linkedin for store local linkedin for store invest and our websites are just simply storeinvest.com.au and storelocal.com.au. We'd love to have a chat with anyone that's out there. Just happy to share our knowledge uh, for investors coming into the market and partner with people who, um, who want to be part of it. Love to. Perfect, mate. Today's guest has been Hans Pearson. Cheers, mate. Andrew, thanks for the opportunity. Uh, great show and, yeah, excellent, mate. Thanks. Really enjoyable. Have a great day. You too, buddy. Alright, alright, that brings us to our newest segment to the show, and that segment is called Ripper Resource. In this segment, I'm going to share some resources that I have personally used, read, or listened to that have made a big difference in my life, and I think they deserve to be shared. So this week's Ripper resource is Will It Fly? How to test your next business idea so you don't waste your time and money by Pat Flynn. That's a fair mouthful for a a book title, but it's a really, really good book. It's the book that you want to read before you start your next business venture. If you don't know who Pat Flynn is, he's the creator of the Smart Passive Income podcast. He's a really, really well-known name in the podcast industry. He's written a few books. He's got a lot of successful businesses. And basically in this book, it all comes down to how you can actually test your idea to make sure there is demand for it before you go all in and spend money, time creating this product. It's a really good book with a lot of actionable steps. If you are starting a business, you should definitely read this beforehand. So it's this week's Ripper Resource, Will It Fly by Pat Flynn. All right, it's time to crown this week's winner for the Commercial Property Value Add Strategy Plan. And this week's winner is Tony MWA. Now, all you need to do is get in contact with me to collect your prize. If you would like to go in the draw to win 50% off a strategic value add strategy plan for your commercial property, all you have to do is go onto Apple Podcasts, give the podcast a five-star rating and leave a review with your name and you will automatically be in the draw for next episode. I'd like to thank my guest today, Hans Pearson. Cheers for the interview, mate. I look forward to chatting with you in future. I'd like to thank Kevin McLeod for the music. One more special announcement. We've got a new segment 
starting on the show next episode. So look out for that. It's really exciting. And remember, in the words of Grant Cardone, the world is not going to come and make your dreams come true. I'm Andrew Bean, signing off. This has been a Developer Life production.